Welcome to Mythal Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. Lizzie, how's it going today? Uh, well, it's um, going... Nope. It's going pretty good. Um, <laughs> I finished my thesis, which I've been talking about for the past many episodes. And awesome. So that's exciting. I submitted it. I'm now done with my whole degree, which is kind of crazy because I submitted it online. So it was very, like, anticlimactic, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. But um, that's very exciting. And for anybody awesome. who was following along, my hypothesis was supported, which is very exciting for me. What was your hypothesis? My hypothesis, hypothesis was, <laughs> was uh, well, it was about non-native English speakers that they would choose English to talk about mental health instead of their native language. Cool. And that was mostly supported. I mean, that's, okay, it's like very, very detailed, but basically... People said that they would prefer English to research stuff online and to have casual conversations, but they would prefer their native language for therapy sessions. It's the general rundown. Interesting. Okay. Very. But anyway. Is there a place where people can read it online? Um, actually, not currently, but if anybody is dying to read it, I can send it to you. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Yeah, send us an email on mythaladies. Yeah, it'll be in the newsletter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, how are you? I am tired. I've had a crazy week. I'm taking care of my dog this weekend by myself, and he is a special needs doggy, so it is a lot of work. He's very cute. He's very stinky, Um, but it's it's good. It's fine, but I am very tired. I've had four days off of work, and I haven't been able to sleep in a single one, and then I have to be at work at 6.30 tomorrow, which is a lot, so. (laughs) But you quit. Right. I'm going to quit. I'm, oh, I'm going to give yet. my notice tomorrow. I haven't yet because I haven't been at work, but I'm giving my notice tomorrow. And when this episode airs, I will have already given my notice. So very exciting. That's exciting. Let's hope it doesn't go terribly. I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, if it goes terribly, you don't have to work there anymore. So it's true. Yeah. What are they going to do? Not schedule me? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So Lizzie, it is July. Which is also Lizzie's birth month. Which it is. is. <laughs> um, and it is our July-themed episode, so what are we talking about today? Today our theme is mermaids. Very exciting. We talked a little bit about mermaids. Well, we talked about a mermaid in the Yara episode. But um, yeah, today we're going to talk about some lesser-known mermaids. So, there are many water spirits across world mythology and folklore, but today's episode is going to focus specifically on women who are half-human and half-fish. So, the stories of creatures who are half-woman and half-fish appear all over the world, beginning in ancient times. Uh, men who are half-fish appear in folklore and mythology from time to time, but are far less common for reasons that I don't mm-hmm. really understand, but it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the conception of a mermaid varies greatly worldwide, though there are a lot of commonly found themes across the mermaid stories, like that they typically represent the unknown dangers of the sea, and as such are often malevolent figures luring men to their deaths. Nowadays, mermaids are typically thought of as more gentle and passive, even though most older depictions were much more hostile, you know, aggressive, evil. Our conception of mermaids began to change roughly around the 18th century when sea travel was less fearful and tragedies at sea happened less often, which was also Mm. around the time that Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Little Mermaid, where mermaids were depicted as good-natured and curious about life outside the sea. Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of the current Western world's conception of mermaids was largely informed by Disney's adaptation of The Little Mermaid in 1989, mm-hmm. which is a rather sanitized version of Hans Christian Andersen's story, which was already a more positive spin on classic mermaid stories. Mm-hmm. Some conceptions are informed by contact with other cultures. For example, the Greek sirens um, often have influence on other European mermaids. Um, But generally speaking, there is no one source that influences all others. Mermaids appear all over the world, occasionally due to syncretism, but there's also plenty of evidence that 
places outside of Europe have had mermaids before any sort of contact with Europeans. So mm-hmm. some people say that all depictions of mermaids originate from sirens, but that's clearly not the case since mermaids appear mm-hmm. all over the world independently. Um, and also because the Syrian goddess Targetus predates sirens and she was sometimes uh-huh. portrayed as being half fish, though not always. Yeah. And also, the fun thing that Lizzie learned this episode is that originally in ancient Greece, sirens were not half-human, half-fish. They were depicted as half-human, half-bird. I think it might have been both, but, like, it's interesting. So, according to Wikipedia... Well, they were in the sea, but according to Wikipedia, they were originally depicted as half-human, half-bird, and then the changes came, like, later. Ah. And I'm guessing they're just sort of, like, carrion birds, like, they eat, like dead humans that like they lure onto the rocks but anyway i don't know it's so just we elected not to talk about them today for that reason because, yes for that reason because they're not half fish exactly fun thing to, fun yeah reason. it is kind of interesting because a lot of like romance languages the word for mermaid is like comes from siren mm-hmm. but siren in russian case in russian too oh so. really yeah interesting it's like sireni or something i've only seen it written out i don't know how to say it fair enough yeah Beginner Russian. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know what level of Russian you're at. No, I'm, I'm at, like, less than beginner, so Oh, yes. okay. <laughs> anyway, we see a similar thing with mermaids that we saw in our episode about Celtic fairies, where they were once seen as evil, but their depiction has gradually become more good-natured, friendly, and also passive. I can't exactly say why this is, so this is kind of just, like, me saying this, but... It does seem to follow a general trend of women who were once seen as evil and aggressive and dangerous, gradually becoming more palatable and gentle as time passes, almost like legends have become more sanitized in addition to becoming safer. There's also less to fear in the forest and in the sea than there once was. Um, So Mm -hmm. fairies, mermaids, and the like appear less fearful. But I also think there's like a trend in general where monstrous women have depictions in the modern day that are just more palatable. Mm-hmm. For example, you can see this from ancient art that Medusa used to be depicted as really ugly and monstrous, but nowadays her depiction in art is a lot more sexual and glamorous. Mm-hmm. So there's a general trend of depictions shifting, which can probably be chalked up to cultural values shifting, but I didn't read that anywhere. Yeah. I'm just making that up. So, But anyway, good. so we have seven mermaid ladies to talk to you about from all over the world. So we can see how the conceptions of mermaids have varied globally and also through time. So, Zoe, mm-hmm. who are we talking about first? Alrighty. So our first mermaid today is La Sirena Chilota, who is a mermaid of Chilote mythology. In, so in Chile, in South America. And so she is basically, has the appearance of our traditional idea of a mermaid. She's got a body that's half human and half fish. Her hair is often said to be gold, and her tail is covered in shimmering golden scales. Ooh. Yeah. And the legend has it that she's the youngest daughter of Mia Lobo, who is the most powerful being in the sea after a creature called Kaikevilu, who I'm going to talk about in just a moment. Okay. And also a human named Huanchula. And so the reason why I'm going to talk about Kaikevilu is that basically she's similar to the Sumpal, which is from the Mapuche flood myth, which is an indigenous group native to the area. And this describes an epic battle between two monstrous snakes named Tranchanvilu and Kaikavilu. And Kaikavilu is uh, sort of the giant snake in the ocean. And he thinks that humans are not respecting the ocean, so he causes the massive flood and basically starts flooding the entire world. That makes sense. And then during this fight, yeah. He's kind of right. Yeah, he yeah, it was like they're not they're not respecting fish, they're taking too much, you know. And during this fight, Chanchen Vilu responded to the pleas of help from the humans, and he transformed the ones who had drowned in the flood into Sumpal, who are essentially mermaids and mermen. So it's p- possible that the idea of La Sirena Chilota comes from that myth. She's one of those mermaids that was transformed. And so she, as the youngest daughter of Mia Lobo has the task of taking care of all the fish, like a shepherdess watching a flock. And she also helps her two brothers carry drowned sailors to El Keleuche, which is a legendary ghost ship in Chilote mythology. 
And basically the legend is that if you're brought to that ghost ship, you are brought back to life and you live on that ship forever. Ooh. And so she brings them to there. So they're brought back to life and they can be happy. And so that's one of her jobs. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. She's often said to live near Laite, which is an island in the southeast of the Chilote archipelago. And she can sometimes be observed by sailors singing and combing her hair with a golden comb. However, they must not get too close as the songs of La Sirena attract sailors and enchant them into loving her. So if he gets too close, even if he tries to get away with her after seeing he's part, seeing that she's part fish, she will cry and tell him the sad story of her loneliness. And through that, she'll seduce him fully. And then she'll use magic to take him down to her family's palace at the bottom of the sea. If he's submerged, he'll be unable to return to his own family, but he will receive immense riches living with her. However, if she decides that she no longer wants one of the men, she will free them. They'll be able to go up to the surface and they'll be able to like live their lives as normal back when they were, you know, just normal fishermen or sailors or whatever. But when they start to form new relationships on Earth, their descendants will be born with a fishtail or like webbing, showing everyone that their fathers have been with La Sirena Chilota. And yeah, that's pretty much all I have for her. Use some classic mermaid. Yeah, like, and I think it's interesting because, in yeah, there's a lot of like similarities to her and like the Little Mermaid, or at least yeah. like the Disney version. Like combing um, her hair and everything. Yeah, she's like combing her hair. She's helping drown sailors, which is like what's happening in the Little Mermaid. Like the Little Mermaid she rescues the prince when he's drowning. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she's also the daughter of like. The most one of the most powerful beings in the sea, like Little Mermaid, is the daughter of like the king of the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting that there's those similarities in yeah. that story. So yeah, I think she's fun. She's a and yeah, she's a very classic mermaid figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is why I wanted to start with her because like you kind of get it all. You get the beautiful mermaid, half human, half fish. We get the luring sailors with their beautiful song and taking them underwater. And then also, you know, she brings them back, which is great. Yeah. Like, she's quite a nice little mermaid figure. Very classic. Yeah. Next, we have Suvana Macha, who is from Thailand. So she's a mermaid princess who appears in some Southeast Asian versions of the Ramayana, most notably mm-hmm. in the Thai and Cambodian versions. So, for... Anyone who doesn't know, the Ramayana is a very famous Indian epic poem. What is considered to be the original version by Valmiki was written anywhere between 500 to 100 BCE, but there are as many as 300 different tellings, many of them from Mm -hmm. different Asian countries or different regions of India and written in different languages. The story of the Ramayana spread very widely over a period of around 2,500 years, and the Indian scholar A.K. Ramanujan says 300 tellings may even be an underestimate. Mm. So there's a lot of different versions of the Ramayana gotcha. in the last 2,500 years. So, Suvada Mancha does not appear in most versions of the Ramayana, but she does appear in the Thai version, which is called the Ramakian, as well as the Cambodian version, which is called the RMK. Her name means golden mermaid, and her story in the Ramakian and BMK revolves around her relationship with the god Hanuman, who is an important figure in the Ramayana, and who's mm. also a Vinara, who are monkey people that appear in the Ramayana, just like, you know, mm-hmm. human-sized yeah. dimensions stand upright, but they're monkeys, basically, for a cool. visual there. Have you read the Ramayana? No. <laughs> it's quite long. It is, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But it's, it sounds very cool, you know, it's yeah. on my, you know, reading bucket list for sure. Yeah, you should definitely read it. It's, it's quite nice. Although it's been a while since I've read it, so I should really reread it. But anyway, I have not oh, read I this version. I didn't realize you read it. Yeah, That's like really a, cool. a really long time ago, like in 2016 or something, I took like a community college class on mythology. Oh, that's awesome. Weird that that's never come up, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I read the Ramayana for that class. It's very good. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so he's just like a monkey person, kind of, Hanuman. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Suvana Macha was the daughter of the demon king Totsakan, or Tosakan, who is the Thai version of the demon king Ravana. He is the king of the island Lanka, which is, is basically just Sri Lanka, like modern day, and the main antagonist in the Ramayana. So basically, Totsakan kidnapped Rama's wife, Sita, and Hanuman was trying to get to Lanka in order to save her. He and his men built a bridge, but the bridge washed away overnight. 
Hanuman decided、mm. to keep throwing rocks into the sea, but each time he did, a mermaid appeared to take, to take the rock and swim away. So he decided to look for the leader of the mermaids, and he spotted one who seemed to be giving orders to the other ones.、Mm. He began to swim towards her, but she evaded him. He continued following her, and she continued escaping. However, as he continuously followed and watched her, he found that he was falling in love with her. So he changed、mm. tactics and started wooing her instead. All this in the water? Yeah. <laughs> wow. They're all very good swimmers, clearly. Yes. And so then she stopped swimming, and then they became lovers. So,、um, Hariman asked her why she was destroying the bridge. She told him that her name is Suvana Macha, and she's the daughter of Totsakan. Her father saw Hanuman and his men advancing and told Suvana Macha to stop the building of the bridge in whatever way they could. And then Hanuman told Suvana Macha that, like, the reason that they're building the bridge, like, her father has kidnapped Sita and he has to rescue her.、Um, mm-hmm. So she decides to help him and has her mermaids return the rocks they took and the bridge gets built. Wow. Yeah. So she saves the day. I mean, she also created、yeah. the problem, but you know. <laughs> yeah, but. But yeah, she solved it in the end. Yeah. Very nice of her. When she had all the relevant information, she、yeah. decided to do something. Positive、different. figure. And so after Hanuman leaves, Suvana Macha learns that she is pregnant with his child. She gives birth to their son, who is called Machanu, and his upper half is a monkey, while his lower half is a fish. Wow. Machanu later meets Hanuman for the first time in a very dramatic scene where they're in battle and Hanuman is about to strike him. and Machanu says something about how he's the son of Suvana Macha and the great god Hanuman. And then Hanuman realizes that he's his son. Wow. Which I think sounds like a really nice scene. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, it's sort of like, oh, right, yeah, the, the, the person that's half monkey, half fish <laughs> is my son. But when I had that affair with him, <laughs> Yeah, that actually like, sounds kind of obvious when you say it like that.、Um, kind of like Bach. But, like, I mean, maybe he just, maybe he has a lot of affairs.、So. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the Venara in general had affairs with mermaids.、Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Who's to say? True. But yeah, that's a very fun story. Yeah, isn't that nice?、Mm-hmm. Kind of heartwarming. Yeah. Anyway, so Philip Hayward notes in his book Scales for Success, the Internationalization of the Mermaid, that modern conceptions of a mermaid in Thailand are heavily inspired by the Western image of a mermaid. Obviously, this is because of Western influence, because of imperialism.、Mm-hmm. Um, in 1966, the municipality of Songkla in the south of Thailand commissioned a statue of Suvana Macha, inspired by the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen. But the, mm-hmm. but the statue more closely resembles a Western mermaid than the older image of Suvana Macha that appeared in Thai art, which was more like ornate and resembled more traditional Hindu iconography. Interesting. Yeah, it is. And、um, since the statue was installed, it became a religious icon, despite the fact that,、oh. it was, yeah, that it was meant to solely be a tourist attraction. Visitors would drape the statue with garlands and yellow scarves to support their prayers. But the local council was concerned about this shift in the statue's function. So they issued an announcement in 2013 saying that the statue should be viewed as secular rather than a religious site.、Hmm. Which is kind of interesting because she's a character in the Ramayana. Yeah. Like, there's deities in that story. Yeah. Like, it's, it's already a book that's like blurring the line between like text and religion.、Mm-hmm. I th- it's interesting that they're not like really letting people worship her. It's、yes. kind of sad. Yeah, it's clear that there's like a lot of, a lot has changed in between when the Ramakian was written and now. Yeah, and it's also interesting that there is like、um, such a drive to worship her because it sounds like she doesn't have such a huge role、yeah. in the story. Yeah, but I don't it's quite obvious、know. that her appearance like makes a big impact on people.、Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think they should be allowed to worship her with a statue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of weird to be、anyways. like, no, this isn't allowed to have further meaning to you. It's just supposed to be、mm-hmm. for tourists. Yeah. But anyway,、mm-hmm. that's basically it. That's my、show. opinion with a very surface level understanding of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> so, my next lady is also called Sirena. Or, well, so as, as a mermaid called S I R E N A, but pronounced Sirena. And she is a mermaid from Filipino culture. So, these women also appear as beautiful women with the tail of a fish. Often having long flowing hair that is curly or wavy. And they're considered to be bantai tubik or water guardians. 
And so similar to La Sierra and Chilota, Sierranas have a beautiful voice. Their singing enchants sailors, causing them to be distracted from their work, walk off ship decks, or cause shipwrecks. And once they're off their ship, they will get abducted by the Sierrana. And some stories say that the Sierrana sacrifice the men they abduct to water gods. Some other stories discuss a different technique that they use to sort of steal sailors. They say that the Sierrana pretend they need rescuing from drowning, and once the men jump into the sea to rescue them, they will suffocate them, which I think is fun. And not drown them. Yeah. Well, maybe they suffocate them by holding them underwater. I don't know. I mean, drowning is basically suffocating. Yeah, so, like... Same thing. It's kind of a... It's the same, like, ultimate cause of death, I think. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) And then some other stories say that once a human sees a Sierrana, they have a heart attack and fall into the water, dying. Wow. So, they're they're a pretty scary figure. In the ocean. Sounds like it. But however, if a Sirena falls in love with the human, she becomes obedient to the human and no longer tries to kill him. So, wow. Obedient. Yeah. Big change. It just it's interesting because I don't know how they would have the chance to fall in love with the human, but if it happens, that's what that's what's gonna happen. So it's love at first sight. It's yeah. Very exactly. And they're usually accompanied by aquatic animals such as dugongs slash manatees, depending on what you want to call them, sea turtles, and also dolphins, porpoises, small sea mammals. And in the Bucal and Visayas regions of the Philippines, Sirenas are known as Majindara and considered vicious mermaids. So they're very scary in those regions. Mm-hmm. And it seems they're pretty scary in general, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, I mean, they, like, they give people heart attacks just, yeah, just like from one glance. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you see them and you're like, oh my gosh, and then you fall off your ship into the water and die. Like, That's very scary. Yeah. Um, and actually, in pre-colonial Philippines, it was believed that an embodiment of the full moon had descended from the sky to swim with the Surana. And when that happened, the Surana were responsible for protecting the moon from sea monsters. Ooh. So, like, in the pre-colonial beliefs, they were not just, like, these scary sort of creatures sent to, like, sort of torment and put sailors in danger, but also they had a greater purpose of protecting the full moon in the sky um, that had descended from the sky from monsters in the ocean. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I thought there would be, like, just generally more of a link between the full moon and mermaids. I didn't come across it that much in mine, but talk about it a little bit in the ER episode. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's probably something there i mean i mentioned yeah, this in the I R mean, episode but like h2o the moon turns them into mermaids yeah and there's also just like the fact that um mermaids are associated with the ocean and like is like the dangers of the ocean moon obviously controls the tides of the ocean and then there's probably something to be said about like when there's a new moon there's not very much light out at sea like at all which makes it more dangerous probably ah, yeah um, and so, like, there's probably that sort of association, which is opposite when you think of H2O, because it's always, like, the full moon is scary. But, yeah, like... They're, they're, like, at their most powerful when, when it's the full moon. Like, they get yeah. special powers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, like, when the moon drops into the water, that sort of sounds like it would be a new moon, because the moon's not in the sky. Oh, okay. So then it's interesting. They're probably, like, protecting the moon from sea monsters, and that's sort of, like, shows like the dangers when the moon's not in the sky in the ocean mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense so those are sirenas they're fun also pretty classic mermaids a little meaner than la sirena chilota mm-hmm. but they sound very cool. fearsome yeah but also they're still said to be beautiful which is interesting because they are typically very beautiful just mermaids in general yeah but that might change with my next lady really sort of in a way so my next lady okay. is um, the marrow, so that's just like the Irish equivalent of a mermaid. So mm-hmm. the word marrow is a hiberno English term, so that's Irish English that comes from the Irish maruch. Interesting. Yes, and um, yeah, but then sort of just like anglicized into marrow. So they live in Tirfahin, which means land under the waves, which is a huge country under the sea, and they use a special device in order to swim underwater, which is a red cap called Kohalindri, which means little magic hat. Interesting. Yeah, although I will say that I asked my Irish friend, and she had never heard of 
really any of these words. And neither had her friend who she also asked. So hmm. they're not commonly spoke about in co- in modern Ireland. But anyway, mm-hmm. but the little magic cap seems really fun. Yeah. And um, they, they typically take the cap off when they're on dry land. But if a human man takes hold of it, they cannot return to the sea until they get it back. Hmm. Yes. So. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a kind of a similar thing with Selkies, or am I making that? That is also, that is very similar to Selkies, ah. which, spoiler alert, we'll be talking about a bit <laughs> later. So. Well, but yeah. And then it also makes sense on, like, a very logistical level, because if they need the hat to swim, if someone takes it from them, then they can't swim. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> from what I read, there's two main depictions of the marrow. The first is meant to be repulsive and appealing, with green skin, hair, and teeth, a red nose, and small, narrowed eyes, as well as webbed fingers. So, hmm. um, yeah, a bit different than, like, the beautiful, like, seductive mermaid that we're used to. Yeah, definitely. And the second variant is meant to be very beautiful, with pale skin, dark eyes, and long hair. She can also change her appearance and can appear human at times, though she also has webbed fingers. Hmm. So intermarriage between marrows and humans does occur, though typically marrows don't like humans very much. A marrow might agree to marry a human man because any children they might have has a chance at a human soul. Hmm. Which I think okay. is interesting. Like, there's something less pure about a mermaid soul. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well... That's the thing in, like, The Little Mermaid, too. Like, the original one with Hans Christian Andersen is, like, she doesn't have a soul when oh, she yeah. dies. So they, she becomes, like, sea foam on yeah. the water. So there's, like, all this lore of mermaids not having souls, which is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so mermaids are typically bad omens and creatures of doom. And they're often depicted luring sailors away with their beauty and singing and drowning them and stealing their souls, which they keep in cages underwater. Oh, yeah. Kind of fun. Um, mm-hmm. They've also been described tearing their victims apart and eating them. Hmm. There are various depictions of marrows, especially in medieval and post-medieval writing, though it seems to me that folklorists aren't always very clear on sources, so a lot of this <laughs> isn't known in depth. But... um. And, like, of course, there's a lot of variation as well. One account from a 17th century chronicle of Irish history called The Annals of the Four Masters says that a mermaid was cast ashore in Scotland in 887, who was 195 feet or 59 meters long and had hair 18 feet or 5.5 meters long. Whoa. Which is huge. Like, yeah. Makes me wonder if most marrows are meant to be that big, because it seemed to me like they were just human size. That's terrifying if they are. Like, I was, like I was a, down for them, and then now if they're, like, 195 feet, I'm, like, That's literally huge. That's scary. I'm, like, don't want to go in the ocean. <laughs> and there's also a similar account in the Annals of Ulster from the year 558, but I don't know if that's... It's, it makes me think, like, are all marrows this size, but it's just not mentioned? Like, it's not important to, like the details Mm -hmm. or is it just like some of them or one of them who was 195 feet that's so big yeah also really specific i feel like like why not 200 feet yeah i mean well like they probably just measured it and that was how long like why is the mirror gonna just sit there and let them measure (laughs) well i i I was assuming it was dead oh i was assuming it was like a beached whale i mean that too but like (laughs) I mean, yeah, I was also thinking it was probably, like, <laughs> some sort of a dead animal that had washed up, and they just called it a mirror because they didn't know what else to call it. But I don't know what kind of animal that would be either, so it's still a terrifying concept. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, there's also a story yeah. from the Book of Invasions, which is a medieval collection of poems in the Irish language that talks about a group of sailors on a migratory voyage in the Caspian Sea who get lulled to sleep by Mero's singing and eventually use wax to plug their ears so they can escape which I'm sure that sounds familiar to you. Um, This clearly has Homeric influence. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's something similar that happens in the Odyssey where Odysseus tells his men to plug their ears with beeswax so they aren't tempted by their singing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it seems that after the medieval period, marrows diminish in popularity, so there aren't very many more modern accounts, but they do appear in pop culture sources from time to time. For example, in Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Mm -hmm. Gathering. 
cool. Yes. That's <laughs> and that's fun. that's the marrow. That's very scary. Yes. Anyway, oh. who's next? So actually, there is some aspects of the marrow that is surprisingly similar to my next lady, who is the Lampaguin. And that is very interesting because the Lampaguin is a water sprite from Wabanaki mythology. And the Wabanaki are an indigenous nation from what is now known as the northeastern United States. And so very far from Ireland is what I'm yes. trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so depending on the story, um, they can either be humanoid or have fish tails. So, and the interesting thing is they have magical garments and they take them off when they bathe and they will fall under the power of anyone who steals those garments. What kind of garments? And in some legends, I don't know. I think it's just like clothes. It's not clear. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of clothes. Yeah. In some legends, those who steal their clothes claim them as wives as well. And they can be people or animals. And so that's really interesting because that's very similar to the idea of the hat. Yes. Uh, that the Maros have that if someone takes it from them, they aren't enabled to uh, return back to the water and they're mm -hmm. under the spell of whoever takes them or like at their mercy. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. And they're also said to be able to make food from nothing, such as transforming snow into a loaf of bread or having a magical pot that produces an infinite amount of food. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Also reminds me of Streganona. I know you were going to say Streganona. <laughs> I, I was just waiting for it. I know. It's a great mm -hmm. book. Um, that's yeah. very handy. It's a great power. Yeah. And that's really about all the information I could find about them. I did find a story called The Adventures of Two Water Fairies Who Are Also Weasels. And that describes several adventures of a group of Lumpakinawak, which is the plural mm -hmm. term for Lumpakin. And they are married off, first to men, first to the stars. Each time, they grow tired of the world they've grown accustomed to and try to find something new. So they get married to a man who, like, takes their garments and they're, like, with him for a while. And then they're like, oh, this is boring. So they run off and they get married to, like, some stars, like, in the sky. And then they get bored of, like, being in the sky. So they try to go back to the man. And then the man's like, no, I'm already, I'm married again now. Like, I'm done with you. And... They're rejected. That's and then they get all, into all sorts of mischief with other animals, including a crane and a salmon. And then once they meet the salmon, it sort of becomes the salmon story and they kind of disappear. And at some point, really they fun. also. That whole storytelling yeah, like, thing. Mm -hmm. And also, at some point, they like change from being um, women to weasels. And that's because the story itself is a combination of Passamaquoddy and Mi'kmaq legends. And so the, in the Passamaquoddy story, the women are Lumbukunawak, and in the Mi'kmaq story, they are weasels. So it's sort of combining those two together. But I just thought it was interesting because it shows that they're very, you know, kind of frivolous. They don't really settle. They're always running around, and they're kind of not really ideal wives, basically. And even if you, like, take their garments to, like, tame them or whatever, like, you can't really, like, pin them down. And I just thought that was interesting. They sound really cool to me. Yeah, they sound like a gr they would be, like, a blast to, like, go to a party with. Yeah, they sound like, like, those really fun, like, mischief-y folklore characters just, <laughs> just doing whatever they want. Yeah, like, they're literally just, like, messing around, and they're like, oh, we're gonna play a, tr a prank on the, the, the salmon now, and then we're gonna, like, leave him, like, <laughs> under a tree, and then the s salmon's gonna, like, run into, like, the devil and stuff, and it's like... That sounds really awesome. Time. Yeah, I'll, it'll be linked in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it. It's quite long, um, but it's a good time. Sounds like it. But yeah, that is pretty much the Lampaguin. They are water sprites they have clothes that if you take them they'll be under your power but that doesn't mean that you can really control them mm -hmm. yeah clearly not mm -hmm. so next we have the nibinabe so before we start nibinabe is the singular like neutral form the plural form is nibinabeg the feminine is nibinabekwe and the feminine plural is nibinabekweg Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, so they are a water spirit from the Anishinaabe peoples, who are a group of culturally related peoples from what is now called the United States and Canada, which include the Ojibwe, Odawa, Salto, Potawatomi, Oji Cree, and Algonquin peoples. So 
for some like etymology. Basically, their name means like water person or woman when it has the feminine ending. Uh, Nibi means water, Nabe means man, and then Ikwe means like woman. But there's also another um, etymology that I saw, which is that it means like sleep being, where um, Niba means sleep. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it'll be clear why in a second. So, the Nibinabig um, are typically half human, half fish, but they can also appear fully human when they choose to. They sometimes swim to the surface and pretend to drown, and when a man comes to try and rescue them, um, they pull them under and marry the man. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I think she's a really interesting um, version because she does do the classic, like, you know, pretend to be drowning and then kill a man. Mm-hmm. But, like, well, you'll see what classic I mean in a second. Gag. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, in order to live among the Nibinabeg, um, you have to go through four levels of life or death. The, the details of the four levels of life or death are unclear. Um, I didn't really find an explanation, but essentially in order to live among them, basically you you die. Like, you're, you're not alive anymore when you get to the bottom of the sea where they live. Okay. Yeah. So, but the Nibinabig can visit the living world in dreams. Oh. Which is why I think, that's where I think the sleep thing comes from. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I think they're really cool. So. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are two similar stories about a man who got pulled under to the world of the Nibinabig. I'm kind of combining them, but basically there's two men who are camped out by a lake, but one of them disappears. He had heard a woman's voice in the middle of the lake and went to go save her, but he was pulled under. Ah. His companion had no idea what happened to him and people thought he killed him. He Mm. He maintained his innocence, but they told him that he had to go to the same place where his friend disappeared and drown himself. Oh. Yeah. So, he went to the lake in order to do so, but when he got there, his friend emerged from the water. So, his friend said that they allowed him to come back to land to visit his parents. His friend asked who they are, and he told the story of what happened to him. A Nibinabekwe fell in love with him but had to conceal him because her parents didn't approve of her bringing a human since humans mistreat the Nibinabeg. But Yeah, but it was too late for him to return to the human world because he was essentially dead now. So, hmm. yeah, they had to just accept him from that, from that point. Whoa. Yeah, so the man married the Nibinabekwe and they had many children. However, in time, he missed his family and asked to go back. They were reluctant to let him go back, but said he could go if he brought back tobacco. Basically, like, humans worship deities and leave them offerings of tobacco, but they leave yep. nothing for the Nibinabig. His human friends helped him gather tobacco to bring back, and he also told mm-hmm. them that they should leave offerings of tobacco for the Nibinabig in the future. Awesome. That was kind of a fun detail. Like, he's, like, really yeah. initiated with the Nibinabig at this point. He's like, yeah, gotta leave them tobacco. It's just Yeah, it's like, polite. you gotta respect them. They're yeah. here, too, and they want your respect. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of Kaikevulu flooding the world because the humans aren't respecting the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Gotta respect them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, then he went back under the sea to his new family. But there's also in one of the other, in one of the two stories, um, there's the added detail of the man gets taken underwater and he learns his fate and he, like that he has to marry Nibinabekwe who captured him and have children with her and that he can never go back. But mm-hmm. he's surprised to learn that he doesn't feel any sadness about it. Oh. Isn't that interesting? I really like that detail. That is very interesting. So basically, he was content and happy with his new home and his new family. When he returned to the living world for a visit, he found himself on the shores of the lake where he disappeared, where with his companion still calling out to him. He had gone away, gotten married, and fathered children, all while only a few minutes had passed in the living world. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's, that's really chilling. I mean, like, you know, it's sort of like... I mean, the only thing I can um, think of is spooky. Narnia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it made me think of Narnia. It's just, like, really freaky to think that you could, like, go yeah. and live, like, almost an entire life and then come back and, like, only a few moments have passed. Right? That's really... Yeah, it's very chilling. Scary, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he swam over to his friend, who immediately realized that he was Nibinabe and expressed concern. He told him that he was very happy with his new life. 
His friends and family were desolate because they realized that he could never return, but he was mm-hmm. happy and returned to his new home content with his life. Nice. I really like that story. I think it's yeah, so interesting. I like it too. Yeah, I find this story really intriguing. Like, first of all, it presents a really different view of a mermaid than we're used to. She drowns mm-hmm. men, but not for the purpose of harming them, but to initiate them into her world and to live out the rest mm-hmm. of their lives together. You get the sense that this is a magical other world because of the passage of time being wildly different from the human world, and because of the fact that there's clearly the sense that when you're initiated into the world with an Ibinabig, you can never go back. Yeah. I find the detail about him feeling no sadness about his new life really interesting. He's been kidnapped, and he doesn't have any choice as to his fate, but as he's being told how the rest of his life is going to look, he realizes he's okay with it. This seems to me to be the magic of the Nibinabeg. Everyone from his old life is horrified, but he's happy. Which I feel like you can see this in two ways. The first is that he's been, like, condemned to this life, but also condemned to, like, never question it. And, like, so, like, also kind of change his state of mind, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, alternately, like, the underwater world of the Nibinabeg is so separate from the human world, like, more enlightened in a way, that the man is happy, but his human friends and family just don't understand. His new life yeah. is different than he expected, but it's fulfilling, and it's something that a human would never be able to comprehend. Even the man who was kidnapped couldn't have understood how happy that this life would make him before he was kidnapped. He couldn't have known until he passed through all four levels of life or death and experienced it for himself. Yeah, that's I, really cool. Yeah, I feel like this story really gives you, like, food for thought. Like, so interesting. Yeah, definitely. It, and it also reminds me of La Sionana Chilota, who's, like, taking men underwater to, like, be with her. Mm-hmm. And they also can't return. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's so interesting that he's, like, realizing that it's better where he is now or, like, that he's happier that he, there he is now. There's, like no grief in the story or yeah. very little grief in the story it's and it's not that the uh, nibinabig are aren't scary they're just like there it, to bring him into a different way of being it's just like really separate him ultimately yeah yeah it's like a different world yeah it's really cool mm-hmm. so that brings us to our last lady or group of ladies for the episode who are selkies and so this is going to be a brief overview because uh, we can definitely do a full episode on them. And as Lizzie knows, I love them. They're some of my favorite mythological figures. And I definitely want to do that, but I still got a good amount of information, so I'm excited. Me too. Basically, Selkies are beings found in the folklore of the northern islands of Scotland, as well as in Faroese and Icelandic folklore. Oh. And they are human-appearing people, particularly women, who can transform into seals by donning the skins of seals. And fun fact, the act of transforming into a seal is known as therianthropy, which I didn't know, but I thought was fun. And so the typical selkie story involves a human man finding a selkie skin on the shore of a beach, stealing it, and compelling the generally female selkie to become their wife and lover. And we sort of talk about this in the Crane Wife episode where Mm -hmm. we discuss animal wife myths, and this is sort of a variation on that, where... um, a woman is also a seal. She's also an animal and is, you know, made to become the wife of this man. Mm-hmm. But when she's forced to become the wife and lover of this man, she doesn't assimilate into the community she's forced to join. She's often found staring at the sea, longing for the life she's been forced to leave behind. Mm-hmm. And she may bear her husband children, but if her skin is returned to her, she will immediately return to the sea and abandon her children, often never to be seen again. It's quite sad. Yeah. Like, not that she's leaving her children, but, like, that she's so compelled to, like, go back to her old life that she just leaves everything behind without a second thought. Yeah, it's just, like, such a powerful Mm -hmm. image for me. It's just, like, being so trapped, like, on the seashore and, like, looking at the ocean of, like, where you used to live and be free. And then when you have that freedom returned to you, you just have to take it and go back. Yeah. In some versions of the stories, she may return to her children in seal form, but never as a woman again. So she's, like really gone from them and that relationship is gone and severed mm. however some stories say that children sired between humans and selkies will have selkie like traits such as webbing between fingers and toes and legend has it that selkies can turn human every once in a while often once every seven years seven is a magical folklore number because selkies are the souls of sinful humans or fallen angels interesting so 
Yeah, so then again, we have the idea that the souls of these, like, merfolk are broken or incomplete or missing because of their connection to the water not living as humans do, mm-hmm. as we understand humans to live. Even so, with this connection to sinfulness, um, the people of the Scottish and Orkney Islands only kill seals in times of great hardship, as it's considered bad luck to kill a seal just because. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why you'd want to kill a seal unless you had yeah. to. Yeah, oh, I mean, they are honestly, like, a good source of meat, of, like, you know, blubber. Like, seals are a great natural resource, but it seems that for the people of these islands, seals are not some are more sacred. Yeah. Um, and so you don't want to kill them. And so, yeah, so like I said, silkies and seals in general are treated with great reverence among the people of the islands, despite the idea that they may be sinners. So that could be that the idea isn't commonplace, that it's not super thought that selkies are, you know, the souls of sinful people who've been cast out of heaven or whatever the idea is. Like, that thought isn't super prominent. Or that even if they are the souls of sinners, that doesn't mean they should die like any other animal. That they're still, like, elevated to a status above that of animal and, like, some aspect of, like, human. Mm -hmm. Even if they're not considered as human or equal to humans who live fully on land. But overall, there's a greater connection between seals and humans on these islands than there is between other animals. And I also think that selkies... And represent basically an antithetical idea of the ideal woman slash wife slash mother. Because Selkies are women who refuse to conform to the women's roles in society. And they refuse to take on the role of mother and wife. They have their skin stolen and they're placed into these roles by these men. But if given the opportunity, they will immediately leave their husband and children behind. Yeah, they basically never consent to, to like a marriage with yeah. a man. It's always forced. Yeah, so yeah, they never agree to marry, and they never want to marry, and if they're given the chance, they will leave their husband and mother behind. They'll fully abandon their wifely, motherly duties just to get back into the ocean and get back to the life they had as a sulky uh, without seemingly a second thought. And so I think that, to me, sort of represents, like, this idea of, like, the opposite of what a woman or a mother should be is, like, she's someone, she's, like, not tied down, she's not able to be controlled by men, and she's... She's not so connected to her children that she won't just up and leave if she's given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, she's, like, not a human somebody's... woman. She doesn't, like, feel mm-hmm. that way to her, like, human kids. Yeah. And I think that there's just something to say, like, if, she, if she's been taken by a man and forced to be married, then her children are going to be a product of that f- coercion and that forcefulness. And it makes a lot of sense if she doesn't view her children with that, like, sense of love and tenderness that we expect women to always view their children with. Mm -hmm. Because they're the product of abuse and this feeling of entrapment that she has. And they're just something that's being used to trap her even further. So it makes sense that she wouldn't feel that same connection. But, of course, in a lot of these societies, there are these patriarchal ideas that women have to be mothers and have to be wives. So, like, the idea that a woman would just, like, if given the chance, leave her children and never come back to them and, like, just leave them motherless, it seems like it feels like it would be a very taboo thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that's that's something, another thing about Selkies that I just find so interesting is that they're yeah. the ones who are going to leave even though that's like, and that's roundly condemned by society generally, it's to leave leaving your children behind, especially if you're a woman. I mean, I get why, but also she's like not a human. Yeah. Like it's a so, different, yeah. it's a whole different like situation for her. Mm-hmm. But also it's a bit yeah, sad because I mean, she also doesn't have any of her selkie friends unless she has like some selkie friend who was also kidnapped. Yeah. And I mean, that would be an interesting thought of like, if they're, one of them is able to escape, what happens to the other one? And mm-hmm. like... I mean, they could team you know up what and they do. find their skins. Yeah. Be kind of a fun yeah. story, actually. Fun story idea. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Wonder if one of us here would write that or something. I don't know. I, I think you could do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I love selkies. I love mermaids. I think all these stories are really interesting. I find it, mermaid stories in general very interesting because, as you said, mermaids often represent the dangers of the sea and the ocean and, like, sea travel 
during a lot of human history was super dangerous because yeah. they were just on these teeny wooden ships and like the ocean is very powerful. The ocean is But then terrifying. it's also interesting that these are represented by women. It like, is, these... yeah. Like I, I don't know about you, but like for me there are there's male maybe not big. But they're not really the other two that I mentioned. There's like not male versions. Yeah, well, there are male versions of Selkies, um, but I didn't really go into them because obviously we were going to talk about the female version. I should have talked about them more, but like, they're generally, that's generally like more where the idea of like the children with like webbed fingers comes from is like if a female human has like a relationship with a male Selkie and then like it's pregnant, it's like you'll, she'll give birth to a baby with like webbed fingering and everyone will know that she like had a relationship with a silk with a male selkie or something like that is there a know? word for a male selkie i think it's just a selkie oh i think it's technically a gender neutral term but most of the stories involve women or the associate association is definitely associated with women but yeah it's really interesting that because of the danger the danger of the sea is represented in this female form yeah, it is definitely really interesting. And I'm also just fascinated at the singing. Like, why singing? Why do we decide singing was so dangerous? Maybe it's because it's so beautiful. It's always like, oh my god, their song is so, like, alluring that yeah. I can't help myself. I mean, what, yeah, what else I could mean, there be? I don't know. Beauty, I guess. Well, also that. I mean, beauty. I guess, you know, singing is something you can hear from further away, so it lures you in more. And it can be very enchanting. I, yeah. But I think it's just very interesting that we were like, this music is so powerful that but if a mermaid just, sings, you it'll die. Your entire ship. Yeah, you could die. Singing Music can kill you. That's, that's <laughs> what the story is. Yes. That's how this goes. But yeah, I thought this was just really interesting. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's mermaids everywhere. And the, it's funny how similar a lot of them are. Yeah. And we didn't touch on some other very significant mermaid figures. Like, for example, we didn't talk about Mami Wata at all who we will talk about in future I'm episodes, sure, yes. but she deserves her full episode, which is why we didn't really talk about her here. Yeah, I just think the prevalence of mermaid myths and in general mermaids are super fun, and so I had a really good time researching. Me too. This is a really interesting and, topic. Yeah. I feel like maybe we could even do a part two someday, but I bet we'll we could see. do a part two. Yeah, if people have any mermaid f- favorite mermaids that we haven't covered yet, send them, send them our way. Let us know who you want us to talk about. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please feel free to leave a review. It's so helpful, giving us some traction. And also, feel free to subscribe. And we'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.